0: And if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. It's maybe that you're a very first time listener. And so what we do for the next hour is we take people's questions from God's word, maybe a passage they're studying and they're not sure what it means or how to apply it or an issue they're facing in their life. And they'd like biblical counsel. If we can help again, all you need to do is call the number Rick just gave. It's eight four three five two five eighteen fifty nine. It's an 843-EXCHANGE-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. When you call, you can go on the air live. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it either way. Some email questions have already come in, and maybe we should start with those, Rick. All
0: right. As uh, I think we've mentioned in the past, there's a Bible study going on at the Ridgeland Correctional Facility, and they've been sending us a number of questions, including this one from Ricky, who is uh, an inmate there. He writes, why do so many people believe in God but have a different God they serve? Uh, So is it more than one God? So who do we serve as a Christian, a man or a statue? This question comes from a radio program of a few weeks ago.
1: Well, Ricky, it's a good question, and I'm glad uh, you guys are meeting, studying God's Word there and uh, trying to seek uh, His will and plan for your life. Uh, There there is only one God, and of course, in the Decalogue, Deca means ten, and so sometimes we refer to the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue. And so there are two critical places where that is recorded in Scripture. One is in Exodus 20 and the other is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And of course, God specifically uh, says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in the second commandment, he said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So uh, God is a a jealous God. He is the one true God. And really to worship any other God is to be on the wrong path. But yes, you are observing a lot of confusion in our day. And uh, this confusion, I think, is being intensified in the time in human history that we are living because there is more and more and more apostasy, apostasy, The word apostasy means to fall away. And we have people who are falling away from the truth. And so Paul warns of this in Romans one, when a person refuses to give thanks or praise that God eventually lets them go. And so they end up worshiping false gods because of their rejection of the true God. So uh, you mentioned to statues and things, you know, that, that's not healthy. That's not biblical during the time of the Protestant reformation. Some people who had come out of Catholicism were they were covered over in statues that had really become idols, though they would say they were not, uh, but had become idols. And I find it interesting, too, that the list of the Ten Commandments that the Roman Catholic Church publishes is different from that of the Bible. They take the second commandment, where you shall not make an idol or any likeness thereof, and you won't find it in any Roman Catholic listing of the Ten Commandments. And then they come down to uh, you shall not covet and they break that into two parts and that's how they get 10. So uh, we're not to have idols. We're not to worship at a statue or anything like that. Uh, God cannot be represented by a piece of stone or glass or anything like that. Great question. Keep asking them. And if I can do anything to help you brothers there in the Correctional Institute, you let me know. Let's go to the next question. I think we've got all three lines full, so let's take the first one.
0: All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, it's me?
1: Yeah, I have, thanks for calling. What can we do to help today?
0: Yes, sir. i got a question. Um, you mentioned one time uh, in the program about uh, um,
1: Genesis chapter 6, that the, the, the sons of God came, and came down to the sons of men, uh, women of God. Uh, Yes. Amen, right? Mhm. Yes. Now, that that they, they became to they have they've been pregnant and they have been giants, right? And because now how come in the book of Revelation you said that the angels cannot they baby angels? So, is so the contradictory thing there, I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's a great question. You know? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And of course, I was referencing a passage where Jesus was addressing the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, of course, for a a number of reasons. One is they did not believe in the resurrection and uh, they did not believe in uh, just a number of things. Uh, But with that said, it says on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking him, teacher Moses said, and they come up with this scenario of a man, you know, uh, has a wife and. Uh, the man dies and she marries again, and he's really going through the process of levirate marriage. Um, and when all the air comes out of the balloon, the question is, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. But Jesus said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Um, And and then of course he says, but regarding while we're here, I might as well address it, but we're regarding the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he uh, refers again to a text from uh, the book of Genesis And when God has uh, an encounter and he says, I am not, I was, but I am the God of Abraham. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so in the single tense of a verb, which tells you how uh, the Lord viewed scripture and how he believed every word right down to the tense was inspired, smallest jot and tittle, he says, in the sermon on the Mount uh, so, in and in he quotes Genesis because he's addressing Sadducees who were really the theological liberals of the day. And those were the only five books of the Bible. He could have gone to other books of the Bible that explicitly taught the doctrine of the resurrection. But he just went to those books that they did embrace and he started there with them. But here is the point that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And of course, this is a verse that is often misquoted and misunderstood and this was the context in which I was relating it because I think you were asking, um, the, I was addressing a question concerning the um, people who are in heaven and that in heaven, we're not married. We're like angels. Angels don't marry other angels and have little angel babies. And though it's a uh, popular, especially during the time of the Middle Evil uh, time of art to create these little baby cherubs with wings and so forth floating around. Angels, a fixed number, were created all at once for God never to create anymore. The Bible reveals that truth, and we'll study this more as we work through the Revelation. So angels don't procreate with angels, but what you're raising is a different question. In Genesis six, it tells us that uh, the sons of God, the bene elohim. Um, it's an expression that is used. There's a number of uh, names that are given to angels in the Bible. For instance, they're called hosts. They're called stars. Uh, uh, They are called messengers. They are called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. Why? Because they are an expression of a direct creation of God. And so they're given that title. With that said, uh, they came down and they attempted to cohabitate with women, and they did. And the offspring were freaks. So the question is different. It's not, can angels cohabitate with angels? In that sense, will be like the angels in heaven. And again, that's a phrase that is often misunderstood or has not been read carefully. When people often refer to someone they love who just died, they say, well, he's one of God's angels now, or she's one of God's angels No, we don't become angels when we die. We're like the angels and we're like the angels. And then in heaven, uh, we're married to the groom, so to speak, who is Christ. And the bride is the church. And in marriage, as we know it for procreative purposes, has ceased. So with that said, uh, that doesn't mean that an angel cannot take on human form. And in every instance in the Bible, when an angel comes and manifests himself, in human form and the writer of the hebrews said look you can entertain an angel without knowing it why because they look perfectly human but in every example we have in scripture they always come as men they come as males and of course uh, angels are described with male pronouns in scripture and they are so human when they take on that form that we discover that the men in sodom were breaking down the door trying to anyway, even after the angels uh, sent by God's power through them, some blinding curse, they're still trying to break down the door. What? To have relations with these angels who came and visited Lot's house. Did they believe it was a real possibility? Absolutely. So again, when you come into the New Testament as well, you have divine commentary on this. Uh, They left their formal estate as Jude and second Peter reminds us, and they did what was Incredibly evil, and that's why this particular group of angels have no freedom to roam or wage war. The Bible says they are in eternal bonds. Anyway, what I would suggest you do to get the long answer is go to searchthescriptures dot org, click on books of the Bible, go to Genesis, go to Genesis chapter six and listen to that message. Uh, the first message from genesis chapter six and i think your question will be answered more fully especially with the new testament divine commentary that god gave us
0: very good Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's bible line and we have another live caller standing by thanks for holding good morning you're on the air good morning rick good morning pastor good morning yeah, in in my daily devotional, I was reading Colossians this morning. Colossians 3:23, 3, 3:20, 3, or excuse me, 3:23 and 24 to be exact. And in that, it's you know, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Yes. And it just reminds me, I'm a, I'm a building contractor, and I watched today how people seem to have just just a lack of. I I don't know just no one really really wants to work anymore and it just brings me back to when I was a child how many people during that period of time went to church you know followed god precepts and today it, it not that many go and and I think it has a direct correlation as people's work habits, you know, how they live their
1: lives, and it just it just seems like we're we're really really going down a, a slippery slope very quickly. Well, what you're like your yeah, what you're referencing is what we traditionally called the Protestant work ethic, and the Protestant work ethic was a term that came out of the uh, early Pilgrims and Puritans in the United States where they believed that their work was an act of worship and devotion to God. And they taught that to their children and their children's children. And it really is, you know, the scripture reminds us that God is going to evaluate someday all of our service to him. And again, in the context, he's dealing with a, an issue that the early church um, dealt with the issue of Christian slaves and Christian masters, which may seem, you know, like an oxymoron to to some of you listening. But understand when Rome conquered a people, this slavery that is described in the New Testament, different from what we read in the Old Testament, it was uh, managed by the Roman government. And rather than throwing everyone in prison, when you conquered a people, you indentured them as slaves and you were assigned slaves. So I could be a born again Christian and the Roman government comes and gives me three slaves a slave could do all kinds of things. He could be a physician. He could be a teacher. They they had a multiplicity of roles depending on the culture that they came from. And the question in the early church is how do you regulate it when you have a Christian slave and a Christian master? And sometimes uh, on both ends, it was abused. You know, the Christian slave said, well, look, you're a brother in Christ. Uh, I'm not going to work. And, and, the, and the master said, well, listen, uh, you're, you're working, you've been assigned me and uh, and I'm going to work extra hard and maybe in an unreasonable way. And so he tells masters to grant their slaves justice and fairness, knowing that they too have a master in heaven. And he tells slaves in all things, those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart serve the Lord whatever you do do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance it is the Lord Christ whom you serve and so your work is not unspiritual your work is part of what God will evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ he will look at our work and our work is a a testimony now often we apply this and we say well employers employees and that's a legitimate application, but don't hold it too tight. Um, I mean, what, what, if, uh, what if your employer doesn't want you to be a part of the union and strike with the union, but you do it anyway? Are you viola- in violation of this command? So there's a lot of other implications. But the principle that's timeless is that we are to do our work heartily for the Lord. And it is a testimony. You know, when a, when a person does their work with absolute excellence, however it shows itself, you're a building contractor, maybe someone else is a, a doctor, maybe someone's a pastor, maybe someone's a teacher in school. You, know, you see work, you you see it when it's done well. And when you do it too well to a boss that is maybe not the best guy in the world to work for, but you recognize you're not just serving him, you're serving Christ So the work ethic, yes, is an expression of biblical teaching, and that expression was carried in a broad way to the culture when our culture was more Christianized. It's less and less Christianized. We are indeed in a post-Christian era, and because of that, uh, the influence that the church had is being lost. And the number of people who don't even work or want to work sometimes is fed by the government, the the number of people who are on, you know, some kind of government paycheck, many of whom don't need to be. um, It's sad. It's an expression of the problem that you raise. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Very good. Another listener would like to know, when will tribulation period saints go before the judgment at the Bema seat?
1: Well, the the Bema Seed, as it's described, when Paul says, for we, he's including himself, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's in reference to our evaluation in heaven. And the Bema Seed of Christ takes place while the tribulation period is unfolding upon the earth. And so it's at that time that Christians are evaluated, where God... Um, indeed then merits out our reward. And so he comes back, Christ. And as he tells in a couple of different parables in the Gospels, uh, one implication of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ will be service in his millennial kingdom. Jesus will come back and he will literally rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And in that kingdom, based on faithfulness now, God will deal out responsibility. And really, we do the same thing in life. If someone is responsible in a small thing, then we entrust greater responsibility to them. Well, God's no different. And when we are faithful servants of his, he will give us greater responsibility in the coming millennial reign of Christ. The Bible does not reveal in terms of uh, tribulation saints uh, having a Bema seat. But he does come back, the Bible says, with his reward. And of course, those who survive the tribulation, who do not experience martyrdom uh, during that seven year period, enter the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. Uh, And it might be that, you know, there is an initial evaluation for them. Uh, As they enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ, the Bible doesn't reveal it. So it's pure speculation, but we do know that all service is evaluated. The service that we can dogmatically say is evaluated during the seven year tribulation period is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And the people who are in view, there are the church saints, which began on the day of Pentecost all the way through the rapture of the church. And he's uh, preparing them uh, for the marriage supper of the Lamb that follows. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Did
0: I understand you to say the other day that uh, tribulation period
1: saints will pretty much be martyred pretty quickly? Well, when we come to um, the seal judgments, one of the things that we uh, discover very quickly is there's a great number of people under the fifth seal that appear in heaven. Uh, we're a few weeks away from that. Uh, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true. Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're asking God a legitimate question. They're obviously conscious. They're in heaven. They're able to communicate, but they've been martyred. And so um, there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they were, would be completed also. So yes, there's great martyrdom that takes place. And we'll see this several times through the revelation. So um, most, uh, at least we'll remember that anyone who did not take the mark of the beast which meant they were a believer, uh, they're beheaded. Uh, but some people will escape the thrust of the Antichrist sword or guillotine or whatever means he's using to cut off their heads. Some will heed the warning that Jesus gave. When you see these things happen, fleeing to the wilderness. And of course there he's addressing Jews in Israel, but still they'll flee probably to a place called Petra and they will find a safe harbor. But there will be people across the planet who will be uh, spared, beheading during the tribulation period. There's a huge number that are saved in the seventh chapter that John likens to the sand of the seashore. So there's huge numbers, but there's huge numbers that are martyred. Almost, it seems, as fast as they're saved, that they're martyred for the faith. But some will make it such that at the end of the seven-year period, God will send his angels we'll study the expression the four corners of the earth we don't believe the earth is flat but we'll look at that hebraism and how it's used in the bible and we will discover that god will gather the elect from across the planet wherever they may be and uh, bring them uh into his kingdom okay
0: very good dorothy from delmont pennsylvania writes from at least two different pastors i've heard that the book of proverbs does not really contain promises but Instead, are statements of what actually or usually happens. I just can't believe this because scriptures from Proverbs are quoted in the New Testament. My point of view is that just because we don't see the results of actions doesn't mean that the Proverbs aren't scripture. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. All scripture is God-breathed. I'd like your point of view on this.
1: Well, it's a great question that you ask, and uh, I think the key word here is balance because while Proverbs does contain principles, it doesn't only contain principles. The book of Proverbs also uh, contains promises. Now, whenever you um, speak of promises, it's very, very important that one, you don't ignore the context of a promise. Sometimes people apply a, a promise that God has given to a particular audience under a particular situation in a particular biblical context and they apply it to themselves when it has no application to them. I think of course most famously as Moses was there at the Red Sea, it's recorded in Exodus, and he says the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so someone grabs that and says, well I'm not doing anything, the Lord's going to fight for me. Well, again to be consistent, you read 3 chapters later in Exodus, Israel's commanded by God to stand not to stand still but to fight her her enemies. So again, context is everything. You've got if promises in the Bible. If we do this, those are conditional promises. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. That's not a wholesale guaranteed promise. There are some promises that are unconditional in nature, but there are a number if promises in the Bible. God grants us wisdom if we ask him and if we ask in in faith. And God grants our prayer requests, one, if we're in obedience to him, we're, we're filled with the spirit and, and the spirit is leading us in according to the dictates of, of God's word. Uh, Sometimes people take promises out of context where two or three are gathered in my name, you know, whatever you agree upon, it will be done for you. Well, the context is very, very important. And if we rip that out of context, we can misrepresent what God is saying. So we, we want to make sure, one, that when you talk about promises, we understand the overall thrust and flavor and parameters that God gave us. But let's think through this for a moment. Uh, people who portray the book of Proverbs simply as a book of principles, are there not any promises In the book of uh, Proverbs, how about when the Lord gives wisdom out of his mouth, from him comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He keeps the path, he he keeps them and preserves their way and so forth. Is that a promise? I think so. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will, not might, but he will. He shall direct your path. That's, that's a promise. That's not a principle. That's something that God promises. Uh, you mentioned that sometimes things are quoted in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, um, God warns us not to despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be weary when He corrects us. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. That's a promise. Maybe one that you don't want to claim, but it's a promise from God. That's not simply a principle. Uh, commit your works unto God and your thoughts are going to be established. That's a promise that God makes. But clearly there are principles as well in the book of Proverbs and you don't want to ignore those. The righteous uh, Proverbs 11 says the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Well, clearly that's a general principle because there are examples, obviously, even in Solomon's old, own life where sometimes the righteous uh, are not delivered from trouble and there are other balancing principles even in proverbs that teach sometimes the righteous encounter wicked men but god will ultimately deal with those wicked men so uh, it doesn't mean your life will be trouble free all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's a good general principle, but it doesn't always turn away wrath. Sometimes you can give a gentle answer and you get a punch in the nose anyway. So, you know, um, he gives a lot of general principles. The one who oppresses the poor to make out for himself will only come to poverty. Generally, that's true. Uh, That's a principle that Proverbs is giving but there are wealthy people who have ripped off poor people and they will not see their physical poverty in this lifetime but they'll yield great spiritual poverty in the future. So on and then sometimes you know we're not always sure well is this a principle or a promise and one of the things you want to ask as you work through proverbs is there some parallel text that might further define for me uh, whether this is a principle or a promise. And so you want to study uh, every scripture that is given in light of other scripture, in light of the whole counsel of God. All right. Good, 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 good question. Let's go to the next.
0: All right. Our next listener, Walt, uh, says Is there a legal order to things where the rapture cannot occur until the Lamb comes forth in Revelation 5 and uh, claims the scroll? He has not. Uh, opened the seal yet so the time of Jacob's trouble has not yet started uh, keeping with the belief that the church will not endure this time
1: well it, it, it's a fine question and um, you're um, going to see me address this in a little more detail as we move through the seal trumpet and bold judgments as we work through chapter by chapter in the book of, of Revelation but I think if you just go back and look at Christ taking the scroll from the right hand of him, the father who sat on the throne. It's after chapter four and verse one, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things, after what things, after these seven churches that he's just spent two chapters in describing So a door is opened and the church is brought up into heaven. And of course we saw the number 24 is an important number in scripture. And I illustrated it with, with some examples in the old Testament. It's a number. It's what we would call a representative number. And so the 24 elders, you know, they're not Israel. They're not angels. They're not tribulation saints. They're distinguished from all three groups. These are elders in the church. Why? Because the church has been raptured and caught up into heaven. And so the church is in heaven watching and observing when the father hands the lamb, the lion, uh, the scroll, uh, he's given both those titles, Jewish titles. And it's kind of interesting because after chapter four, you have all these Jewish terms that are used all the way through the 19th chapter to describe the events and the personages that are involved, because uh, it's it becomes a very Jewish book at that point. And you can imagine the Jewish people pouring through Revelation. Think of all the Christians like myself who, who go to Israel. And I think of all the different tour guides I've had over the years. And sometimes I, I remember I was um, uh, in one particular place uh, speaking, and all these Jewish people ended up huddling around and were just listening. And I I wondered, you know, I wonder how they're processing this. And it might be that some of those people will remember, you know, pastors and other people like myself who were in Israel at the time. And they said, you know, I I heard this pastor, this American pastor talking about this. And they begin to pour over the book. And so, no, the first scroll that's uh, the first seal that's broken, it's a seven sealed book. Uh, it brings the rider on the white horse. That's part of Jacob's trouble. That's not a blessing to Israel. Why? Because it's a, it's deception. What is happening is deception. And what is happening in these seals are indeed called the wrath of the lamb. Um, when these things are happening in verse 16, we read the people on the earth saying, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. They recognize that they are in the time of the wrath of the lamb. And of course the church has not been destined for wrath, but remember as we will see, uh, I told you I'm creating a chart and it's not quite finished, but uh, Lord willing on the next uh, message that I give here, when we deal with the fourth seal, that's broken in beginning with that and all the way through. I'll, I'll show you the parallels between chapters six, seven, and eight as they unfold with the Olivet Discourse. It's not accidental. and I just didn't have that slide ready for last session, but God willing, we will this time. And by the way, a lot of people have asked me about the slides and I said, look, um, you know, we spend hours on them. Uh, I design a slide. I give them to Steve, he creates them and I want you to be able to use them. All you have to do is go to the website and you can live stream uh, any of the messages and all the slides that people see on the screen on Sunday morning will show up on your computer. All those charts. Now I see people on Sunday morning taking pictures with their cameras of the screens and, and maybe they get a decent picture, I don't know. But it would be really easy just to go and watch the sermon and if, when the slide is up there to take a screenshot of what's uh, being presented and you'll have all the help there that you need if you're trying to create diagrams and you can print them out and have them on your wall at home and I hope that will be of use to you. But when the rapture happens, the church is open, the time of Jacob's trouble has begun. And so, um, the white horse, the rider on the white horse is uh, not a, um, I, I should say technically the time of Jacob's trouble begins with the signing of the firm covenant, but that is very shortly after the rapture of the church. There is a space of time in there, um, that's not given to us in scripture, but because of what Jesus says in the opening words of the revelation, uh, we saw that there's a time word that's given and it's not so much a uh, length of time as the speed of time. And so he speaks of the fact, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And, and so he, he describes this time that is near and he will describe the things that must soon take place uh, the things which must soon take place, and we saw that this was a time word. It's used throughout Revelation. It's the word "taxis" in Greek. We get our word "tachometer" from it, that measures speed. the The point is, is once it happens, the events will suddenly unfold, and that's why um, you can only come to the conclusion that after the church is raptured and before the firm covenant that Daniel predicts that Christ references. Once that takes place, it will be very quick. It will be very sudden. Uh, But with that said, it's technically the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy that Jesus will reference in the Olivet Discourse, begins with the signing of that peace covenant. And that is the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's not a blessing when the rider on their white horse comes and he offers Israel peace because he's a man of deception. And that's uh, that's not a, a, a blessing. It's it's going to turn into incredible heartache. And as night follows day, the rider on the white horse is followed by the rider on the red horse, who brings war. And that's exactly what I was referencing and answered a question that came last week on the Bible line, and other people have been asking me about. Uh, the Battle of Gog and Magog, when you study that Bible, you do those chapters in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you discover that they're in a time of peace when suddenly this war comes in the Middle East. Well, they've never had this time of peace that Ezekiel describes, but they'll have it, but it will be a false peace, and it will be short-lived. But but this is an important question you're asking, because some people try to put the, they, they call the second half of the tribulation the time of wrath. And so you've got like uh, Marv Rosenthal that believes in a pre-wrath rapture and he puts the wrath later in the tribulation period. Some put it at the midpoint because it it is interesting when you read the Olivet Discourses is found in Mark, Matthew and Luke's gospel. um, Jesus uses this expression. I'm going to turn there real quickly in Matthew chapter 24, Um, Jesus makes this statement. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the Holy place. uh, What's he talking about? He's talking about Daniel nine. And if you were with us in our series in Daniel, and I told people who are new to our church and new to live streaming us. And I'm always amazed that the people were live streaming us. We had people in France last week and uh, India and, Uh, different countries of the world. And we really can't measure on Facebook, Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine. We can't measure who, where the places are on Facebook. The only places we can identify the cities and states are those who live stream through our website. But through the Facebook site, there's hundreds of people and we don't know where, but I told those people, I said, it would be really helpful to you if you want to understand revelation to at least listen to the Daniel nine messages because in that great 70 weeks prophecy, God gives you a schematic for the end time events and the revelation fills in along with the Olivet discourse, a lot of those details. And so the abomination of desolation takes place dead center in the 70th week, right in the middle of the seven year period at the three and a half year period. And when that happens, then Jesus warns that there will be great tribulation, And so um, he says, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. And so sometimes you will hear pastors say, well, and they're usually mid-trib or pre-wrath rapture people, but not always, but, um, but sometimes inaccurately they say, well, the first half is not the tribulation period. The second half is the tribulation period. No, I think it would be more accurate to say the whole thing is called the great tribulation period. But it becomes greater tribulation it definitely in the second half because again it's turned up like a a rheostat. It increases and it gets more and more and more and more intense. And so the same expression in its articular as brought out in the New American Standard uh, is used in, in Revelation seven of the Great Tribulation. And you're still in the first first half of of the tribulation period. So Um, it, it, God's, God's word is very, very clear here. The tribulation period starts, the time of Jacob's trouble starts with the signing of the covenant and, but it gets increasingly more difficult. And so the trumpet judgments are harder than the seal judgments, as bad as the seal judgments are. There's a numerical reference to the seal judgments where a quarter of the world is affected. But when you come to the seal judgments, for instance, 13 times over, Uh, the world is affected. A third of the world is affected. And then when you come to the bull judgments, but it's still across the planet, uh, but when you come to the uh, bull judgments, the entire planet is affected. It's the greatest expression of God's wrath. So the birth pangs uh, turn into full labor, and uh, in in the end, Jesus comes back.
0: All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, William from Stevens City, Virginia writes, Scripture states, and God requires a person to believe Jesus is the Christ to be saved to eternity in heaven with the Lord. I don't know how persons that lived prior to Christ dying on the cross could be saved since Christ did not yet shed his blood for all man's sins. I've heard you say that Nebuchadnezzar was saved and he was obviously prior to Jesus's time. Can you please comment on this to help me gain a better answer and offer it to my community group at my church in Virginia?
1: Well, it's a great question. And I do address this a little bit in a little booklet that I wrote, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? So i and that's not the focus of that little booklet. Um, I'm trying to address the question, and it is on Amazon and uh unfortunately when we sent in the original copy amazon ended up printing out the rough copy before all the typos were taken out you initially send in a rough copy and they lay it all out and then they send it back and then you make all the corrections Well so they printed the rough copy and we ordered like 400 of the rough copy and not the final copy but they're not going to give us our money back but lay all that aside The the final printed copy without all the typos is is available online at amazon and it's the it deals with the state of the unevangelized. And an important question is what about those who have never heard? Does God send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior whose name he's never heard of? And that's an important question. But it somewhat relates to Old Covenant saints in this respect. Old Covenant saints knew that God would have to provide a way of escape, it was revealed in the Old Testament that man could not save himself. And if you think about it, when Paul, for instance, reasons from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, what scriptures is he reasoning from? He's not reasoning from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the books that he wrote because they were still in process. Uh, You will find the early church when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, is he preaching the book of Romans? Of course not. He's preaching the Old Testament. Uh, because in the Old Testament, uh, it, though it's concealed and fully revealed in the New Testament, nonetheless the gospel is there. Uh, when Paul said, For I delivered you as of first importance the gospel, that Christ, that Messiah, the the, the Greek word is Christ, um, coming into English, Christos, uh, Mestiach is the word Messiah. Coming into English, so the title for Christ in Hebrew is Messiah. The title for Christ in Greek is Christ. They are equivalent words, the same office. It is I delivered you as of first importance that Messiah, that Christ, should die for our sins, be buried, and raised in the third day. How so? According to the scriptures, he'll say twice over there in First Corinthians fifteen. According to what scriptures? According to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is reminding the Corinthians. That when he came to them, he demonstrated from the Old Testament the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. How did he do that? Because it's all there. Right after um, Adam and Eve sin, God makes the promise in what we call the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. And I have a sermon on, if you go to my Genesis series, this might be helpful to you. Listen to the message where I address Genesis 3.15. It's the first gospel given in all of the Bible that God is going to provide a savior for the world. And as you work through Genesis, you begin to see pictures of that unfolding, like with Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah. He takes Isaac up with him. Isaac carries wood on his back. It's really a picture a foreshadowing of Christ carrying a wooden cross on his back. Isaac is not some little boy like he's sometimes portrayed In Sunday school pictures, if you study the chronology carefully, uh, he has to be at least around 20 years old. He's in that time frame. Now, the Talmud says he was um, 32 years of age. In either case, he's no little boy. He could have easily overpowered his father, Abraham, who tied him to the altar. He willingly laid down his life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He said, no one will take my life away from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it back up." And so you have a picture there. And of course, right when Abraham is decided in the tense of the uh, the Greek verb in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, where you have commentary on it uh, to describe him taking that knife, it was decided in his mind that he was going to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest until the angel of the Lord comes and stops him. Uh, So you have this picture and then the angel of the Lord says, here's a substitute and there's a ram. And what is it? Where is the ram? He's in a thorn bush and what's around his head. He's stuck in a thorn, bush. he has got around his head, a crown of thorns. Jesus will later say in his public ministry, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He saw there on Mount Moriah, by the way, where did Jesus die on Mount Moriah? We call it Mount Calvary from the Latin Bible, but he he dies on the mountains of Moriah. Uh, That's where the temple was on Mount Moriah. Uh, It's not by accident. uh, All these events that unfold. So people in the old Testament, it was revealed to them. They could not save themselves and that God would provide a savior. Certainly, We speak of what's called progressive revelation, and that's a term I'm careful with because you've got people today who say God's still giving revelation. He's still progressively giving us information. No, the canon of scripture is closed. But under the Old Testament era and as the New Testament was being written, God was progressively revealing truth. Of course, the last book to be written was the book of Revelation, where God gave his final and last word. But at different times in the Old Testament, certainly different Old Testaments knew more as God progressively revealed more and more. So you have Philip, for instance, encountering the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and the eunuch is coming from Jerusalem, and he has purchased for himself a scroll, which tells you a lot about the man, for him to spend his own personal money to buy a scroll, was an incredibly expensive prospect because paper was so expensive and most people didn't own their own scrolls. They would go to uh, a place like the synagogue or the temple and they would listen to the scriptures being read. And that's why even in the opening verse of the revelation, this is pre printing press. Um, Blessed is he who reads and hears God was giving a blessing to the reader Uh, because the public reading of Scripture was absolutely essential. Now, we can apply that in a broader way today, because we have in our laps a copy of the Word of God. So he purchases for himself the eunuch scroll, and God, of course, sovereignly brings Philip from a revival where tons of people are getting saved to have him go preach the gospel to one person. Why? Because God is interested in us, not just as masses, but as individuals. He cares about you personally. Christ didn't die just for a big conglomerate called humanity. He died personally for you. And the pronouns that are used in the New Testament speak of the personal nature of the death of Christ. And so it's not inaccurate to say that if you were the only person alive, Christ would have died for you. With that said, the man is reading the text, but... He doesn't understand it. What text is he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53, which is a big scroll. It's longer than all the, what we call the minor prophets from the fourth century on. Twelve books we call the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant or less inspired, but because of the length of their prophecy, it's shorter. And so the distinction between major and minor prophets, maybe not the best terms, but nonetheless, they've stuck over the centuries and they speak of the length, not of the uh, importance or of the nature of the inspiration. All scripture is equally inspired because it's given by the breath of the spirit of God. And uh, Philip explains to him, and that's really typically what needs to happen. People can get saved by picking up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room, but it doesn't usually happen that way. Most of the time, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And so God brings a personal human agent who takes the scripture and explains it as they're filled with the spirit and God's spirit gives them clarity, something that Paul prayed for in Colossians four, or asked other people to pray for him for And my, that was Paul's need. What must our need be? Um, And his heart was open. He believed, but he's preaching a passage where the whole death, burial and resurrection is given. Now, God has now overlooked the times of ignorance and he's declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has um, uh, fixed the day in which he will judge the world through, through Jesus Christ. And so now we know the name of Messiah. We know his name is Yeshua. Uh, they didn't know that prior, uh, God gave the name Yeshua Hebrew. Joshua is the translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Jesus' name in the Old Testament, if we were speaking English and English hadn't come into play yet, wasn't a language yet. But if you lived in Jesus' day and you were calling him uh, by his Hebrew name, you would call him Joshua. If you uh, call me in my Spanish name, you'd call me Carlos. Uh, My English name, Carl. Uh, So his name was Joshua in Greek, Isus or Jesus. And so um, uh, the Lord revealed in the progression of time that Messiah's name would be Yeshua or Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. And so, yes, now uh, we're living in a different age. The revelation has been fully revealed and tightened and people must call upon the name of Jesus. But this is a related question Uh, where I began with my book concerning the state of the unevangelized. And that's an important question. I'm not going to address it here today, but I I think that's one we should all be able to answer because it's one of the 10 most commonly asked questions that people will lay on you.
0: Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, Carol writes, After the rapture, uh, will those who heard the gospel yet did not believe and receive the love of the truth and as to be saved have a second chance to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they included among those whom God will send a deluding influence so they will believe what is false so that they will be judged?
1: Well, it's a good question, and, you know, some of these questions that people ask, I'm going to address as we work through the Revelation. So I'm just going to give you a very brief answer, and as we work through Revelation And some questions I've just put off and said, just hold your horses, you know, I don't want to spend 30 minutes right now where I'm going to spend, you know, an hour and 10 some Sunday morning if you'll come and listen. Uh, But with that said, the scripture is clear that those who have heard the Bible prior to the rapture of the church, uh, because of their lack of response Uh, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what's false. Why is God going to do this? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And by the way, that's not a principle that's unique to the tribulation period. It's a principle that actually continues in this day. Um, Jesus uh, in John, the 12th chapter was dealing with some people that, uh, he had done a number of miracles before, and they were basically spitting on him by the decisions they were making. And so Jesus said, "For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that you will, so that darkness will not overtake you." He's speaking to people in his century that if God gives you light and you don't do anything with that light, then darkness can overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light. Why? So that you may become sons of light. And then it says these things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them, but though he had performed so many signs, um, the word for a sign is the Greek word Sameon. It's one of the words for miracles in the New Testament. There are other words for miracles, but this is the word that John loves to use because it really speaks not just of a miracle, but a miracle with a message. And though Jesus was doing these miracles that had a message behind them, for instance, he did certain miracles they witnessed that only Messiah was going to do. And they should have said, well, this is what the scriptures say Messiah is going to do. So if this is something Messiah is going to do, why aren't we believing in him? And yet the scripture says they would not believe in him. And then it goes on to say they could not believe in him because they would not believe in him, they reached a point where they could not believe in him. So uh, after the rapture of the church, now you'll have a popular book series like Tim LaHaye's uh, Left Behind, and he's got people who've been witnessed to before the rapture, and they get saved after the rapture. And the argument behind that is in that space of time. And they say, well, the diluting influence does not come until the start of the 70th week in this space of time. We're not told how long it is, probably days, hours, maybe it could be a month, who knows. But in light of what is revealed in other scripture, it's a very, very fast process. And I wouldn't bank on some space of time in which I'm going to get my heart right. Because if I won't get it right today, Jesus said, the darkness can overtake you and you'll never believe. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for The Bible Line. Hope you have a good day as you walk with Jesus Christ.